Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn back to where we left off last week, and that was 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And I want to read verses 12 through 15. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. Father, while this was spoken thousands of years ago in a different time, in a different place, we have the confidence in this place and in this time that your eyes are open and your ears are attentive to the prayers that are offered in this church this morning. And so, Lord, as we've already prayed, would you revive us for the sake of your name? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in light of my invitation uh, that I've extended to all of you to join me in a special season of prayer for spiritual revival and renewal, uh, I thought it would be appropriate and helpful for us to look at what the Bible actually says about revival. And uh, last week I mentioned that this is a subject that's not often talked about in conservative evangelical churches like ours due to all the baggage that's often associated with it. The concept of revival, as many of you know, has been misapplied by well-intended traditional groups. It's considered nothing more than the annual evangelistic rally under the big tent, out behind the church or in the town center. Um, I think the concept of revival has been worse, hijacked by way out there Pentecostal groups and what we uh, see as these Holy Ghost revivals, as they're often claimed to be. And so we tend to shy away from this whole subject because we don't want to be associated with some of those uh, weirder things that are often associated and kind of give uh, revival a bad name, if you will. But we need to understand that revival is a dominant theme in God's Word. In both the Old and New Testaments, we see God constantly confronting spiritual backsliding and at the same time constantly providing spiritual awakening. Clearly, God's people drift and disobey and dry up and become downcast. And we need to be regularly revived and restored both personally and corporately. And so while this is a huge subject... The subject of revival, I've 
attempted to simplify it and summarize it by answering three questions. What is the meaning of revival? What are the prerequisites of revival or for revival? And what are the true marks of revival? And again, essentially what I'm attempting to do here is to um, answer the question, what are we actually asking for when we pray for revival? What, What are we asking for? And what should we be specifically looking for in answer to our prayers for revival? What what would revival actually look like in my life or in the life of our church? And so last week we began looking at the first question, what is the meaning of revival? And I said that the dictionary, uh, specifically Webster's Dictionary, who was a a believer as far as we know and uh, really the father of Christian education years ago and Many of his definitions uh, still today are based on uh, his knowledge of God's Word. And so uh, the Webster's Dictionary defines revival or revive as follows. To come or bring back to life or consciousness. To resuscitate. To come or bring back to a healthy, vigorous, or flourishing condition after decline. A stirring up of religious faith among those who have been indifferent. And that's a good starting point for us. But uh, based on the Old Testament references to revival that we looked at last week, and we looked at a number of them and just kind of just read through, looking at all the, the, the Old Testament data on revival, we could say this, maybe a more specific biblical definition, revival is a powerful movement of God's Spirit when He rejuvenates, reanimates, revitalizes, refreshes, or restores a person or a group of people after a season of difficulty, disobedience, or dispassion. Again, it's not simply that that you've been apathetic. That may be the case. Um, It's not necessarily that you've been disobedient, which may be the case, and unfortunately is often the case, It may be that you've been just in a difficult season of your life where there's no sin necessarily uh, in your life. Um, You're you're, um, remaining true to the Lord, uh, but it's just been hard and you just are looking for a a fresh um, vision of the Lord. You're looking for a cool glass of water. You just need a a, a refreshing. I mean, you've been persevering, um, enduring, but you need to be refreshed. Revival is often referred to as a reawakening because we find ourselves sometimes in a spiritual stupor or a slumber, as it were. But I thought it was interesting as I was looking at these words, rejuvenate, reanimate, revitalize, refresh, restore, reawaken. They all assume that there was prior juvenation, prior animation, private vitalization, a, pri- a prior refreshing, a, a, a prior um, a healthy state before you needed to be restored, that you were awake, now you need to be reawoken. And I thought how true that is, because two of the main verses in the Old Testament about revival have the word again in them. Psalm 71.20, you who have shown me many troubles and distresses will revive me again. And will bring me up again from the depths of the earth. Psalm 85, 6. Will you not yourself revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? And so this whole concept of revival is not a one-time experience. This is an ongoing experience of 
a person of God or the people of God. And I think any biblical definition of revival is not complete if it doesn't also include how God, by His Spirit, through His Word, regenerates and resuscitates those who are spiritually dead. So revival does also apply to, refer to, unbelievers. But I think revival in God's Word, as we saw last week, primarily refers to and applies to God's people individually and collectively. And so when you're talking about revival, particularly in this context, we're talking about revival among believers. And so we began considering the Old Testament first and foremost uh, last week, and in, in, in the history of the nation of Israel, as you know, was a never-ending pattern of spiritual declension and spiritual restoration. An evil king would rise up to power, lead the nation astray from God. God would send a prophet to warn the people to repent, or he would judge them. And then, in God's providence, a righteous king would lead the people back to him, and God would grant them a renewed commitment to obey him and honor him. And, uh, and so we see uh, multiple biblical revivals. In fact, that's one of the questions that I ask on the, the application questions is, are you aware of, of any of the, the, the revivals that are mentioned in the scriptures? Um, maybe the first one that should come to our minds, probably the greatest awakening um, ever in the history of the world was not the Great Awakening in New England back in the 1700s. It was that the Greatest Awakening was thousands of years ago in a city called Nineveh, where literally hundreds of thousands of people got saved. They repented of their sin, and they became true followers of Jehovah God through the ministry of Jonah. And so that's an example of a biblical revival or, of course, we could look at the, 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 the account of a Pentecost, right, in Acts chapter 2. That could be likened to a revival when the Spirit came down and empowered the disciples, the apostles, to preach the gospel. And they had the first 3,000 people get saved. Um, and the church was launched. That would be another example of a, a biblical revival. But probably the one passage in the Bible that most people think about or that comes to most people's minds when um, they think about the subject of revival is this passage that I've read this morning, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, particularly verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now, I said last week this passage is often ripped out of context and applied to the need for revival in our nation, in our country, without any reference whatsoever to what it meant or how it applied to its original audience. And we know this was originally written to the nation of Israel, not America. But I think this passage applies in principle to believers. Again, we talked about what, is, what really needs to be revived in America. Does, does America need to be revived or does the church in America need to be revived? I think that's a better way to consider revival in America. But here we see, in principle, this applies to all believers and really serves as a model or a pattern for all true revivals in all places and at all times. Because notice God said here, my people who are called by 
my name, which is a term God used uh, to describe his people, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. Gentiles, in fact, non-Jews, were referred to as those who are called by my name in Acts 15, 17. We also have Romans 15, 4. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, that talk about whatever was written in the Old Testament is there for our instruction um, as an example for us to follow. In other words, Paul encouraged Christians to go to school on the Israelites. And we look here at verse 14, for example, and, and the first observation, I, I think the most natural observation here is that there are some conditions for Revival. What are they? If my people who are called by my name, number one, humble themselves, number two, pray, number three, seek my face, and number four, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now, again, we need to understand this in, in the context. This is a direct, this, this, word from the Lord was a direct answer to the prayer that Solomon prayed, King Solomon prayed, at the dedication of the temple. And so let's look at the context here. Back in chapter 6, starting in verse 14, and I want to read quite a bit of this because I think you can't fully understand what God was saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, if you don't understand the background. And so, as you know, David always had a desire to build a temple, a permanent house for the Lord, instead of him having to live in a tent while he lived in a palace. Uh, he said, this is not right. My God deserves a, a place of his own. And so he had a desire to build a temple uh, where the Lord could, uh, the people of Israel could come and worship the Lord. Well, because he was a man of bloodshed, he said, well, I'm going to leave that for your son Solomon to build. And so God was true to his word and God used Solomon and all of his wealth to build this magnificent temple there in Jerusalem. And uh, this was dedication day. And uh, we see in verse 12 how Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands and now Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high. And he had set it in the midst of the court, and he stood on it, knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and spread out his hands towards heaven. I mean, this is really cool. We, we, we are used to uh, a, a lifted up platform uh, for a pulpit to show the sacredness of the preaching of God's word, right? But here was a, essentially a platform to show the sacredness of prayer. Instead of, instead of getting up to, to preach a message, um, Solomon got up on that platform and knelt down and lifted his hands to heaven and prayed. I mean, that would kind of feel weird, right? If, like, the pulpit was not here and one Sunday I just got up here and I knelt down and I just prayed the whole time. That's essentially what he's doing here. He's, he's, he's going before God on behalf of the people and he's the king, he's the spiritual leader, if you will, and he's interceding on behalf of the people in this sacred um, occasion of dedicating the temple. So notice what he prays, verse 14. And, and, and as you listen, um, as I read, 
2 Corinthians 7.14, the, the meat will just fall off the bones. It'll be like, oh, I totally understand why God said what he said there. Verse 14, he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who has kept with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him. Indeed, you have spoken within your, with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand as it, as it is this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. If only your sons take heed to their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David. But I will, God, but, but will God indeed dwell with mankind on the earth? Behold, heaven is and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. So he's acknowledging, God, seriously, I mean, I get this, okay? This is a little box, you know? And, and, and who can put the God of the universe in a box? Yet, have regard, nevertheless, have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O Lord, my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you. So Lord, listen to what I'm about to pray. Verse 20, that your eye may be open towards this house day and night toward the place of which you have said that you would put your name there to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. Listen to the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray together toward this place. Hear from your dwelling place from heaven. Hear and forgive. And so he's already front-loading this prayer with, hey, by the way, I know there's going to be a lot of prayers that are prayed from this point on and they're often going to include, we messed up again, God. Would you please forgive us? Notice verse 22. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, punishing the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. If your people, Israel, are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you and they return to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication before you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them back to the land which you've given to them and to their fathers. Verse 26, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you and they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and your people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land which you have given to your people for an inheritance. Verse 28, if there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, if there is locust or grasshopper, if their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people, Israel. I love that. By, all it takes is one. Even if it's the prayer of just one guy who gets it, who sees it. Or by all the people, Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own pain and spreading his hands towards this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each according to all his ways whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of the sons of men, that they may fear you to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you have given to our fathers. And he goes on to continue to pray for the foreigner and other things, but I think that gives us a, a, enough to go on here that, that 
that Solomon knew the way God worked. That God had set up the nation of Israel very clearly, brought them into the promised land, and uh, even when they entered the promised land, they got on the two mountains, remember? Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, Gerizim and and back and forth, they chanted the blessings and the cursings of God as a reminder to the people as they entered the promised land. If you, uh, this basic principle, God's saying, if, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I'll curse you. And how would he bless them? Practically, he would bless them with, with, uh, with, with peace in the land, and they would flourish. And being an agricultural community as they were, a culture as they were, he would bless their crops, and he would send rain, and there would be no famine, and and there would be no bugs and, and all that stuff. They, they would flourish agriculturally. And they would be able to remain in the land. Well, if they disobeyed, how would they be cursed? Well, uh, a number of ways. One, they could be, um, God would send no rain. Um, so the crops would die. There would be a famine. Um, he would send locusts and bugs to eat all their stuff. And so they would just have a, a wrecked harvest. And, and again, that was a very practical way for God, if you will, to stick it to his people if you're reliant on, you know, the corn patch or whatever they were eating back then, right? Um, that was a way for God to get their attention. And, and so this was no mystery. When there was no rain and there was locusts came, it was like, hey, okay, God's trying to get our attention here. Or worse, he would just rip them out of the land altogether and send them off in exile into some other foreign country until they repented and he would bring them back. And so there was so much to do with, with the, the land of Israel, the promised land, and, and particularly the, the, the agriculture of that, of that, um, of that uh, country. And so when he was done praying, verse, uh, chapter 7 begins with the Shekinah glory coming down and filling the temple. This was God's response to his prayer. The Shekinah glory came down and filled the temple. There was, uh, uh, the sacrifices were offered, a, a countless number of ox and sheep uh, were sacrificed by the priest to the Lord. There was a feast of dedication, and, um, and then everyone went to their homes, including Solomon. And that brings us to chapter 7, verse 11. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his, in his palace. Then, here it is, the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him. So here's God coming and answering Solomon personally. I have heard your prayer, and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And in answer to your and also answer to your prayer, if I shut up the heavens so there's no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, which again all were evidences that God was punishing his people as a result of their disobedience. And if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and will heal their land, literally, that I'll send rain. And um, the locusts will die off. There'll be no pestilence and disease. And so there's no need to spiritualize these things to apply to our land, the land of the free and home of the brave, right? America. This is, that's not, he's not even talking about those things. 
we don't live in an agricultural community and where when we have a famine in the Midwest or you know, a hurricane comes and destroys all the flocks on the east coast or the, the, the crops on the east coast, it's not like, you know, automatically we, we equate that with God's judgment, right? In Israel, that was a very easy thing to, to equate. But again, what is the principle here? When God's people who are called by his name wander away from him, they sin against him, and they acknowledge that. They're humble enough to admit that. And they begin to pray and seek his face again. And they actually repent and turn away from their sin. Then God will hear those, those prayers. And he'll forgive their sin. And in a spiritual sense here, again, without spiritualizing the te- text too much here, that, that he will send healing, spiritual healing to their lives. And so we see this really is a pattern for what happened time and time again in the Old Testament. The nation of Israel sinned. They were judged. They admitted it. They confessed it. They repented of it. And God restored them, forgave them and restored them. And that cycle, you know, we see this cycle. Second Chronicles chapter 7 verse 14, over and over and over again in the history of Israel. Now, how about the New Testament? How about the New Testament? Go to the book of Revelation. Interesting, kind of bookending the Bible here with this concept of revival. But you're familiar, I think, with the seven churches of Revelation, which were, by the way, literal churches, actual churches that were there in Asia Minor. And uh, as you know, shortly after um, Christ's resurrection and ascension, the church was established at Pentecost. We already mentioned that this morning. Uh, But not long after that, probably within 40 years or so, Christ had to confront some local churches in Asia who were experiencing signs of decline or decay, were already in need of revival. We're talking, we just had one of the greatest revivals ever witnessed, the, the day of Pentecost, the church was launched, and in just a short 40 years or so, the church was already in need of revival. And so you have these churches that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Five out of seven of these churches were in need of repentance and revival. Again, not a whole lot of time had passed. And so just... By way of example, let's read a few of these uh, confrontations, if you will, that Jesus had with these churches. The church in Ephesus, Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand and out of its place unless you repent. How about the church in Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 14? But I have a few things against you because you have there, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent or else I'm coming 
to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. So here was a, a church that was compromising in their beliefs, their teaching. How about the church in Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 19? I know your deeds and your love and your faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her, de- unless they repent of their, of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. So here was a church that was corrupted and God was not, um, or Christ, uh, you know, spoke very directly, confrontatively to them. How about the the church in Sardis, chapter 3, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will know at what hour I will come to you. And then probably the most well-known church, at least the sin, is most well-known. We talk about it the most as Christians is the church in Laodicea. Chapter 3, verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that shame, the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And of course, the probably most well-known verse here in in all of these uh, churches, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Oftentimes, that verse is taken out of context and, and referred to, you know, God is knocking at the door of your heart right now, and he wants you to open up your heart to let him in. He's talking about knocking on the doors of these seven churches. He wanted the attention of these churches. And really, what a sad situation. In, in just a short period of time, Christ was having to already go back to his church 40 years into it, and reprove them and discipline them and call them to repentance. And again, while these churches were literal historic churches, uh, they are representative of the church of Jesus Christ throughout every generation. And I would assume that there are elements of every one of these churches that we, if we look closely enough, could find in our own church today. And in the churches that are all over the world today. 
And so we see in the Old Testament, we see in the New Testament, this need for revival. And then we look throughout church history beyond the first century here, that God has been faithful and merciful time and time again to revive and refresh his people through men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and John and Charles Wesley and Martin Lloyd-Jones and the list goes on and on and on. If you think about the great revivals or awakenings that took place in the history of the church, probably the one that should stand out the most is the Protestant Reformation. You could call that the Protestant revival. That was a revival of the church, that the church had become wayward and gone away from the truth and the teaching of God's word. And God used these men to bring the church back on track to what does the Bible teach about salvation. That was a revival. That was a restoration. That was a a reanimation of the church. We call it a reformation. So it's the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, 1600s. There was the great awakenings in the colonial United States back in the 1700s, 1800s. There was uh, the Welsh revival in Wales, England, in, in the early 1900s. There, you may have heard of the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles, which many say was the birth of Pentecostalism. Um, there were some good things there, but it, it also uh, unfortunately led to a lot of aberrations of what true revival is. And um, some of you may have uh, studied the, the story of the Asbury College Revival in Kentucky. Interesting story, back in just as recently as 1970. Roger Ellsworth, who wrote a little book called Come Down, Lord. It's a book about revival that I read last week, just a short little book. He said this, quote, The history of the church is the history of revival. Think about that. The history of the church is the history of revival. Sound familiar? The history of Israel is the history of revival. The history of the church is the history of revival. Old Testament, New Testament, he says, in which God has demonstrated again and again his willingness to revive his people. And so having said all that, we need to understand that revivals are miraculous. Revivals are mysterious. They are unpredictable. They are unexplainable. They can happen anywhere at any time. And yet true revival, I think, is more than just an event or or an experience that takes place at a certain time or a certain place. Granted, this may be the case if God so chooses to sovereignly bless and send a revival. But I think at the same time, we need to understand that revival is just simply an ongoing work of God's spirit in the lives of his people, both individually and corporately. In other words, instead of waiting around for some great movement of God, great mighty movement of the Spirit of God, you should be praying that you would experience that on a daily basis. That God would be constantly reviving your soul and reviving your heart and restoring you and renewing you, revitalizing you, keeping your relationship with Him fresh and vibrant. One revival in church history that I didn't mention earlier is the the Puritan movement. 
which those, of, uh, those, those who have studied the Puritans and have written about the Puritans would, would all agree that, that the, the rise of the Puritans in England when uh, the church was being persecuted by the king, by the leaders, the kings and queens of, 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 of England um, back in the, the, the 17, you know, 16, 17, 1800s, um, which, which led to the birth of America, right? The Puritans coming over you know, to find freedom of religion here in, in, in the New England, um, they, they would tell you it was a revival movement. And so one of my favorite books that I've ever read is a, a book called A Quest for Godliness by J.I. Packer, and that's how he described or characterized the Puritans, that they were on a quest not just for a new place to worship here in America, they were on a quest for godliness. And, and he's, he, he talks about how the, it was really a revival movement. And this is how he defines revival. This is, I think, the finest definition of revival that I've ever read. I really appreciate J.I. Packer's um, description here of revival. This is what he said, quote, Revival, I define as a work of God by His Spirit, through His Word, bringing the spiritually dead to living faith in Christ, there's the unbelievers, and renewing the inner life of Christians who have grown slack and sleepy. There's the believers. So revival refers to both unbelievers and believers. He says revival thus animates and reanimates churches and Christian groups to make a spiritual and moral impact on communities an essentially corporate phenomenon, saying that this is what revival is, it's an essentially corporate phenomenon in which God sovereignly shows his hand, visits his people, extends his kingdom, and glorifies his name. I like that. The revival, again, as we're talking about here, is essentially a corporate phenomenon in which God sovereignly shows his hand, visits his people, extends his kingdom, and glorifies his name. That's what we mean by revival. Now let's talk about the second question here. What are the prerequisites for revival? If that's what revival is, how do we experience that? Well, I think the first thing we need to admit here is that revival is not something that you can schedule or manufacture. It's not something you can put on the calendar like, okay, we're going to have a revival week, you know, on uh, January 1st, you know, whatever, 2020. We're going to have a week of revival. Really? You're God. And you can schedule that and manufacture that week of revival. Well, again, we understand the point. Hey, we want a week where we focus and you know, have a spiritual emphasis and we, we get back to the Bible, we get back to prayer and and, and we, we want to be revived in our walk with the Lord. I get that. But don't assume, right? Don't necessarily associate that with revival, that we have this week of meetings or this conference um, or we rent a tent and, and, and that's when revival is going to come. Listen, God is sovereign over when and where, where revival takes place. And yet, as we often say here, that God's sovereignty does not negate man's responsibility. It never does. Just because God is sovereign doesn't make us fatalistic. Well, it's all determined already, and so therefore we can't do anything, right? No, we have responsibility according to God's word. 
And so based on what the Bible says, there are certain conditions that God has clearly laid down if revival is going to occur. In other words, what prompts revival? What sparks revival? What initiates revival? I think the overarching requirement for revival is humility. That's the overarching requirement for revival is humility. If my people, what? Will humble themselves. And namely, what does this look like? A broken and contrite heart which manifests itself primarily through repentance of sin and dependence in prayer. Again, we read this last week, Isaiah 57, 15. God says, I dwell in a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. And so we need to have a broken and contrite heart. And again, we know probably that phrase best from Psalm 51, when David was what? Praying, but he was confessing his sin in that prayer. And so you see a, a, a brokenness and a, and a contriteness manifests itself, number one, through repenting of sin, and secondly, through depending on God in prayer. You can't repent from sin and not be on your face before the Lord in prayer. They're like two sides of the same coin, I guess. And so we're going to see these things as prerequisites for revival. Now, I'm just going to give you three prerequisites for revival. Okay? They're not the only prerequisites, but I think they're the three most important ones based on those verses that I just read about humility and being broken and contrite and, and, and that demonstrating itself in repentance and dependence um, in prayer. So the first one is we must humbly confess and forsake our sin. So if you want to experience revival personally, if we want to experience revival corporately, we must humbly confess and forsake our sin. I think this is the very first step to experience revival, that is to be genuinely broken over your sin and be totally overwhelmed by a sense of your wretchedness and unworthiness before the Lord. And Lord willing, we're going to look at a, at, at a man who had that experience. That was his experience in the presence of the holiness of God, i.e. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6. Um, that was his response um, to the Lord which I think is a great example of a personal revival. We'll look at that hopefully in a little bit. But where do we come up with this prerequisite? We must humbly confess and forsake our sin. Well, again, Second Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will revive them. Acts three eighteen. Therefore, Peter said to the to the group of people that were gathered. Um, to hear his second message after Pentecost, and he was preaching to those who had crucified the Messiah, their Messiah, the, the Jews. He said, therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And he goes on uh, to talk about um, 
in, in, in verse 20 about the restoration. And so we know that this, this, this time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He was talking about sending Jesus back. He was talking about that, hey, you killed Jesus. And he, he died, he rose again, he went back to heaven. But guess what? You repent of your sin and you turn away from your wicked, you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Savior, and guess what? The Lord will return. And so I think this time of refreshing is, is, is ultimately in, its context, in the context there of Acts chapter 3, is talking about the millennial kingdom, talking about the earthly reign of Jesus Christ, that, hey, you missed your first opportunity. Christ came to set up his kingdom, to rule over you as, his, as your king, as your Messiah, and you rejected him. But if you repent, if you change your mind and you change your heart about who he is and you turn back to him, guess what? He'll come back and he'll reign over you, which will happen at Christ's second coming in the millennial kingdom. Asterisk, listen to the sermons this summer, right, about eschatology that Chris and Kyle preached about when all that will take place. But again, in principle here, what, what is required for times of refreshing, for a season of refreshing from the presence of the Lord? Well, you need to repent. You need to return. And then Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, you have left your first love. This is Jesus' rebuke of the church in Ephesus. You've left your first love. Okay, what do you do about it? What do we do about it? Well, therefore, remember from where you've fallen. Remember how much you used to love Christ. Maybe when you first got saved. Remember that and repent, he says, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampside out of its place unless you repent. So again, the key to revival is to humbly confess and forsake your sin. And so we need to examine our lives. What does that look like practically? We need to examine our lives in order to root out sin, both sins of commission and sins of omission. And I assume you're familiar with those two terms, the sin of commission, are sins we commit, that's how I remember this, sins of omission are sins we omit. So you got sins of commission, sins of omission, things that you're committing, sins you're committing and sins you're omitting. In other words, there are things that we're not supposed to do that we're doing. Those are sins of commission. And there are things that we're supposed to do that we're not doing. Those are sins of omission. And so ask yourself the question, am I secretly neglecting some spiritual duty in my life? Something that God has clearly told me to do in Scripture that I'm not doing. Or are you secretly indulging some immoral sin? Are you doing something that you know the Bible says not to do? And so you begin to acknowledge these things, confess these things, ask God to grant you repentance, and you begin to change and grow and stop doing those things that you know you shouldn't do and you start doing those things that you know you should do. I mentioned the Welsh revivals. We're not too familiar with this revival that took place in the 1904, uh, 1905-ish era in, um, in, in Wales, in England, and, and really spread throughout Great Britain. But uh, it's interesting, you hear some of the stories of this Welsh revival 
And one of the things I'll never forget reading about were these hardened coal miners who were just, you know, ungodly, uh, filthy men, physically and spiritually. They, they, they lived and worked in the coal mines. And they came out of the, the coal mines to hear the, the message preached, the word of God being preached, and, and the spirit of God was powerfully moving in people's lives and convicting them of sin, and, 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 and people were becoming broken and contrite over their sinfulness and their need to repent. And, and, it's, and it's recorded how these, these, these uh, hardened coal miners would stand there listening to the message preached, and you would see the tears, the preacher would see the tears streaming down through the coal, uh, you know, faces. They're blackened faces. And, and they also said that the mules that were used to, to drag the coal and the, the carts and things full of coal, they, they got confused. They didn't know what to do because the, the coal miners stopped cussing at them because they normally were used to the getting cussed at, these mules, and they knew what that meant, you know, which way were they supposed to go, and what they were supposed to, but be, because the language of these hardened coal miners changed, they repented of their vulgarity, the, the poor mules didn't know what to do. Again, kind of a silly little example, but how God transforms people's lives when they acknowledge their sin, and they repent of it. Everything changes. And so first of all, we need to humbly confess and forsake our sins. Secondly, we must faithfully hear and obey God's word. We must faithfully hear and obey God's word. And this comes straight out of Psalm 119. And I would encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 119. And I read some of these verses last week. But Psalm 119 is is really all about God's word. And, and the psalmist is, is relishing in God's word and talking about how much he loves God's word and the impact that God's word has in his life. And it's all about the word, the word, the word, the word. The word does this. And, and, and so look at what it says, Psalm 119, verse 25. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Verse 37, turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Verse 40, behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me. Through your righteousness. Verse uh, 88, revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. 107, I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Verse 149, hear my voice according to your loving kindness. Revive me, O Lord, according to your ordinances. 154, plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. 156, um, great are your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. And then 159, consider me, consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. All that to say, there will be no revival, personally or corporately, where there's not the word where there's not an interaction with the word. That is a prerequisite for revival. You must have a vital interaction with the word of God, whether it's reading the word of God, whether it's hearing the word of God preached. Uh, if there's gonna be anything that the spirit of God uses to spark a revival in your life, in the life of a church, it's his word. Donald Whitney um, great 
man of God, great authors, written very, some very helpful books for Christians and for the church. He wrote a book called Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church, and he's got a chapter that I particularly like because it has everything to do with listening to preaching, right? And it's called Why Listen to Preaching in the Church. So why should you sit here? Why should you come every Sunday and sit here and listen to a 45-minute to an hour-long message? Why? Why should you sit here? Well, he answers the question. He says this, quote, Throughout church history, all the greatest movements of God in saving people and strengthening his church have been built upon great God-anointed preaching. The colossal transformation in the church that occurred through the reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, etc., was a work of God upon souls through preaching. When the first great awakening blazed through England and the American colonies, it began burning from and was sustained by the fiery pulpits of men such as Whitfield, Wesley, Edwards, and others. The second great awakening, when the wind of God blew across America for several decades in the early 1800s, was also fundamentally the blessing of God upon preaching. In almost every case where large numbers of people have been converted in a concentrated period, it has been as a result of the message preached. When the fire of God falls, the flashpoint is the pulpit. We have a great example of that in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. This is another one of the great revivals that we either aren't aware of or we don't put it in that category of what's going on here. I thought Nehemiah was all about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Well, it is. But after the walls were completed in a record like 52 days, the people were tired and uh, they were ready to be refreshed spiritually. They'd been working hard, completing this task. And Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 1 says, All the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. I love it. This is it. They're, they're, they're done working. They come together. And what do they want more than anything else? They say, Ezra, bring the book. That would be like you saying to me, Ken, just bring it. Bring it, man. We need to hear the word this morning. Bring it. He said, bring the book, Ezra. And so Ezra was the priest. He was a scribe, right? Um, the one responsible as a spiritual leader of, of the people there that had migrated back from Babylon and, 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 and Persia and were there now uh, rebuilding, having rebuilt the temple and having rebuilt the walls. And it says, verse 2, Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it from the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood a list of these other guys that were there to help him disseminate. These were like for lack of a better term, the small group leaders, the grow group leaders, the ones who were going to get amongst the people and make sure they understood what was being read. So they built a special platform for this purpose. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And again, here's the list of guys. 
went out amongst the people and explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. By the way, that's a great definition of expository preaching. It's like you read the text and you explain the text and you apply the text. That's what, that's what preaching should be. It's explaining the meaning of the text, giving a sense of what it means so people understand, oh, that's what that means. That's how that applies to my life. And so notice they, they stood all morning as the word was being taught. Verse 9, then Nehemiah, who was the governor at the time, Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Again, they were hearing the scriptures and they were broken and contrite. And he said to them, go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who is nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the day of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. In other words, you guys are mourning, and this should be a day of celebration. And then this is interesting. Notice what happened as a result of their exposure to the word of God. Then on the second day, the heads of the fathers, households of all the people, the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. This is the feast of booths. So they're reading along and apparently this generation had never been taught this and they're reading, wait a minute, what's this? The Bible says we're supposed to be doing this. God wanted us to do this the seventh month. We should be living in booze as a way to remember our, our, our sojourn from, from Egypt in the wilderness before we got to the promised land, and we haven't been doing this. We need to repent. We need to reestablish this practice, this celebration, this be obedient to this command. So they proclaimed, verse 15, and circulated a proclamation in all their cities in Jerusalem, saying, go out to all the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, branches of all their leafy trees, and make booze as it is written. And so the people went out and brought them and made booze for themselves, each on his roof and their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and the square at the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booze and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the sons of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. They were like, hey, this is awesome that we saw an area in our lives that, that we were not being faithful to the scriptures. Now we're repenting of that. Now we're doing it and we're happy that we can be obedient. And again, notice he read from the book of the law of God daily from the first day to the last day and they celebrated the feast seven days and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. Now notice again the response of the people to the word of God. Verse, chapter nine, verse one. Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God from a fourth, for a fourth of the day and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Here we have a great revival of the people of Israel and what sparked it it was them being exposed to the reading and the explanation 
and the application of God's word. And so don't think you can just go off and sit under a tree somewhere and pray for revival, right? Without a Bible in your hand. Because if a revival is going to come, in the Spirit of God, this is the tool that the Spirit of God uses to bring revival. And so you need to get into the Word and be exposed to the Word, and God is going to use His Word. The Spirit of God is going to use the Word of God to revive your soul or to come here. Don't say, I, I just need to be right. I need to go somewhere else. I need to get out of here. No, guess what? If God's going to revive your heart, He's going to do it here. You know, over the years, it's been sad for me to think about a handful of folks that have felt they needed to leave our church because they had lost their first love. I mean, that's hard for a pastor to hear when somebody says, yeah, you know, I lost my first love for Jesus at, at your church. <laughs> and well, that really stinks. And I'm sorry, I feel bad about that, but so, you know, the, the solution is to go to another church or to, to leave the church altogether, Right? And, and I've often thought, well, you know what? There's been times where I feel like I've lost my first love. I, you know, I go to the book of Ephesians. I can relate to that. Doing all these things right, check all the boxes. The church in Ephesus, Christ commended that church for a lot of things. But he says, I think you're, you've lost the true motive, and that's just you love Jesus, right? And I think, man, that's, that's too often my testimony. But guess what? I don't have the option to get up here and say, well, you know what, guys, I, I just kind of lost my first love here, so I'm going to go to another church, see if I can find it there. If I'm going to find my, if I'm going to regain my first love, it's got to be here. And it's not here, it's, it's ultimately here, right? Spending time in God's word individually, personally, quiet time, corporately, right? Collectively here as we interact with God's word through our equipping classes and our grow groups and, our, and the, the message and the sermons. Bruce Milne wrote a great little theology book called Know the Truth, and this is what he said, and I'll close with this. He said this, nothing is more calculated to bring renewal of life, vigor and faith of the church in any generation than the unleashing of God's everlasting word in the midst of his people through the ministry of expository preachers anointed by his Holy Spirit. And again, I think that's the testimony of what happened in Nehemiah chapter 8. God used the ministry of an expository preacher, Ezra, who was anointed by his Spirit to unleash God's everlasting word and it brought renewal of life, vigor, and faith to those people, and it can do the same for us today. Amen? We'll come back next week, and we'll look at the third prerequisite for revival, and maybe the most important one, and uh, we'll see what the Lord will do. Father, we thank you for all that the Bible says about Revival. You did not want us to be confused about what revival is. Uh, you've clearly explained to us what it is. You've exemplified what it is in, in many ways, in many passages in your word. And so I pray as we've sought to be faithful to 
keep your word in its context and yet apply it in principle to our lives today. I pray that your word would have its effect in our lives, Lord, personally and corporately. Again, for your name's sake we ask. Amen.